0: So I don't know if you have ever um, been in a situation in school growing up when you were in grade school, and you were in gym class. And for some of you, the thought of that just brings back all kinds of bad memories. And for others of you, uh, you loved it. But do you remember in gym class, when uh, the teacher said, hey, we're going to play this game and we need to break up into two teams. So, uh, you know, Lisa and Tommy are going to choose teams. And everybody stood there and Lisa and Tommy got to choose who they wanted on their dream team. Do you remember that? Do you remember how that felt? Maybe you were Lisa or Tommy doing the choosing or maybe you were one standing there waiting to be chosen and thinking like, pick me, pick me, pick me, pick me. Or maybe that happened in the playground you were playing out in the playground and uh, it was time to choose teams and you did that so you know when you grow up you get away from that kind of stuff right until they introduce something called fantasy sports and then you're choosing your dream team in the fantasy sports pool that you might be a part of and you're just picking and choosing all the best and, and the cream of the crop that you want some of you live more not in the sports world but in the business world, so you are thinking about how do you choose the team that you want to gain success in your business or in your industry. And if you've read Jim Collins, you're trying to get the right people on the bus and then determining where the bus is going to go. And if you've read Jim Collins, you'll be familiar with that, um, with that concept. So today, as we go through Luke's gospel, we're in Luke chapter 6. We're just following along how Luke presents Jesus to us. And we come to this point where Jesus chooses his dream team called the 12 apostles. And I think what I'd love for us to do today is just to camp out on who does Jesus choose and why does he choose these particular people? So let's read together on the screen, if you've got your Bibles, it's Luke chapter 6 beginning at verse 12, but we're going to walk through here on the screen. One day soon afterward, after what's just taken place, Jesus went up on a mountain to pray, and he prayed to God all night. So here's Jesus praying all night, God, I need to choose, the implication is I need to choose um, some core people, guide me well. And at daybreak he called together all of his disciples and he chose 12 of them to be his apostles. So here are their names. Simon, whom he named Peter, Andrew, who was Peter's brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James, another James who was known as the son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas who was also the son of James and of course we can't forget Judas Iscariot who later betrayed him. So Jesus spends all night praying. He needs to choose and he chooses 12 people. Not Don't miss the fact that there were 12 tribes of Israel and here's Jesus choosing 12 apostles. In a sense not only is Jesus re- showing us an idea of a new creation, but in choosing the 12, he's shown us the idea of a new Israel, of what God is doing and starting things over. And God is so good at starting over with us when things don't work out the way that they were intended. So here's these 12 disciples or apostles. Peter, who's the fisherman, His brother Andrew, who is also a fisherman, both of them are from a town Bethsaida. Um, James and John, they were partners with them. Uh, Philip, who, and if you're familiar with Philip, it's not the Philip to be confused in Acts. Philip is the one when Jesus is feeding 5,000 in John 6 and and he's asking Jesus, how are we gonna feed these people? (laughs) Jesus says, you feed them. And then in John 14, he's saying to Jesus, just show us the Father and that'll be enough. So he's looking for something to trust in Jesus. Then there's this guy named Bartholomew, who's also from Bethsaida, Matthew, the tax collector, Thomas, who's also called Didymus. By the way, both the name Thomas and Didymus mean the twin. So it's like introducing, this is the twin, he's also known as the twin. Um, So I'm not sure why that was true, but that's what we're told of him. Um, Simon the Zealot, Judas, one Judas, who was the son of James, but Matthew and Mark have him named as Thaddeus. So if you go to Matthew 10 or Mark 3, and they also have a list of the disciples, you won't see uh, Judas, son of James. You'll see the name Thaddeus. And of course, that leaves for some wonderful conversations about, is that the same person? Is it a different person? Why are they different? And then Judas Iscariot. So there's 12 names, but and here's a, a just wonderful depiction of them. But I want to ask the question, who are these people. Who are these men? And why does Jesus choose these 12? There were more than just 12 people following Jesus. There was a crowd around Jesus all the time. But who are these 12 specifically? So I already mentioned um, Peter and his brother Andrew. But something that, um, that might help in understanding this is Jesus was from a town called Nazareth. And Nazareth was in, a, was in a province of Galilee. So it was north of Jerusalem. And Galilee was like the, I always try to come up with what's a good um, analogy in today's, uh, it, it's the place that nobody wants to live. So what would that be like? You know, where I grew up, we would say Dunville, but um, if you're not familiar with that part of the country, it, you, it won't make any sense to you, so um, I, I'm not going to say a town name here because one of you are bound to live there, and then you're going to be upset with me for saying that, so. But it was a place that, that just people heard about that, and I was like, yeah, that's just, that's just where nobody lives. There were lots of people there, but they weren't significant people. And every one of the disciples except one of them that Jesus chooses are from that region. So here's Jesus choosing his dream team, and all of them are from this part of the province that is really insignificant, and very little influence, um, very little um, of anything to pay attention to. We know that four of them at least fished for a living. So that is not a a type of profession that is uh, looked highly upon, but it was something that you could earn an honest living at. But four of them, Peter and his brother Andrew were fishermen, and they were partners. If you just go back in Luke 5, you'll read about the catch of fish that Jesus does with Peter, and it says that his partners had to help him get the fish out of the boat, and it names James and John. So four of them um, were kind of partners together in business. And they were all fishermen. And then one of them is named as the tax collector. And his name is Matthew. And I think maybe it's in in Matthew 9, actually, he's named as Levi, if I'm remembering correctly. So here's... Here's a guy, and I I just want to dwell on this and help you catch what's going on here for a moment. Four of them are fishermen. The other ones were probably um, like working class, peasant class people that were probably skilled in some some trade, perhaps, one of the guilds. And then there's this guy, Matthew, who's a tax collector, who would have been educated, um, who would have been higher up in status in the larger Roman world, but was considered um, the scum of the bottom of the underside of the barrel because as a tax collector, he would have been betraying his own people. He would have been, they were almost called tax, they were like tax farmers. They bid with the Roman government for collecting taxes. So you would, rather than bidding for the lowest cost, they would bid for the highest revenue that they could get for the Roman government. And then of course, they would also tax on top of that so that they could make their own profits. And it was people like Peter and Andrew and James and John who were abused by people like Matthew in having to pay exorbitant amounts of tax so that they could line the pockets of someone like Matthew. And there's a crowd around Jesus And he says, you two, come follow me. You two, come follow me. Oh, and Matthew, come on. Stop and think for a moment if you were one of those four. What would be going through your mind as you're watching Matthew's name being said for being part of Jesus kind of inner group. Then, of course, there's a whole bunch of them. Bartholomew, Nathaniel, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, Judas, the son of James. They were all like rock stars, weren't they? For even for people that have grown up in church who are somewhat familiar with their Bibles, we've heard of Simon Peter. And we've heard of Judas Iscariot, and maybe we've heard of Andrew and Philip, and maybe even um, his brother um, Bartholomew, or potentially his brother. But so many of these disciples or these apostles, we've never heard of them. Who are these people? They didn't do anything significant. We don't read about them anywhere else in in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All of these writers are telling the historical account of Jesus. They're telling the story of Jesus in their way. Some of these disciples get mentioned. James and John and Peter are the inner three that Jesus seems to spend the most time with. But then there's all these other ones, and you're like, where, where did these people go? And you can read early church history and learn a little bit about them, but a lot of it is, is speculation or legend. Uh, you can read about how each of them died, and all of them but one, they figure, were martyred for their faith. But there's no concrete evidence for that. A lot of that is just speculation. And so, you know, half of this group that Jesus chooses to be the 12, we know nothing about them. We don't really know that they did anything significant. They certainly weren't charismatic in their personalities. Um, There was nothing to draw crowds around them. They just seem rather insignificant. Except, as you read what Luke writes in his gospel and then as it leads into the book of Acts, which is volume two of his writing, They were a part of that group that the Holy Spirit came upon and God sent them out, and they just stayed faithful, and they stayed devout in following Jesus. Then there's this guy, Thomas, the twin. Let me introduce you to my friend, the twin. We also call him the twin, just for fun. Thomas, also known as Didymus. And when I talk about Thomas the disciple of Jesus he's often referred to by another nickname what do we often call him by in the church? Doubting Thomas. Have you heard of Doubting Thomas? We when we use that as kind of like as a way of making fun or of insulting somebody oh there's Doubting Thomas and so this poor guy because in John 20 when Jesus he's been told Jesus has risen from the dead and of course the first people to talk about Jesus being risen from the dead were a bunch of women, and unfortunately in first century Palestinian culture, or in first century uh, Hebrew culture, the, the testimony of women was only worth half of a man. So it would take two women to equal the, the testimony of a single guy. And so the fact that women are running around saying, hey, Jesus rose from the dead, that's why when we looked at this last week, you know, when they told the disciples, they dismissed it as nonsense. And so here's Thomas saying, like, unless I see him and can put my finger in his nail holes and my hand in his side, I'm just not going to believe it. And so we've just coined him Thomas the Doubter. But here's something curious about him. In... John chapter 11, Jesus is going to go to Jerusalem, and it's Thomas of all the disciples. The heat is being turned up, and everybody knows if Jesus goes to Jerusalem, sparks are going to fly. And here's Thomas saying, Well, let's go with them so that we too can die. I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound like somebody who is uh, a coward sounds to me like he's actually um, a really strong supporter of Jesus but he just happens to want to have some more concrete evidence and so he's been nicknamed throughout history of Thomas the doubter and I wonder if maybe we shouldn't name him Thomas the courageous again does he do anything significant outside of that we don't really hear about him again And then there's this guy named Simon the Zealot. Do you know what a zealot is? A zealot, if we were talking about someone who was zealous today, we we would use that term um, for somebody that's got a lot of energy, is really excited about something. But the idea of being a zealot, I think today we would use terms like fanatical, radical. We would even use the phrase terrorist. And remember, this is the dream team that Jesus chooses that we're talking about. So some fishermen, a tax collector that nobody wants to have on their team or be around, so you can just imagine the kind of friction that would have been happening early on. It's no wonder they sometimes argued about who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. then a whole bunch of insignificant people. And then a guy who's, you know, in many respects, you know, has been given the name the zealot because of his radical ideas and today we, we just call people like that terrorists. It just gets better and better, doesn't it? James and John, in Mark chapter 3, Mark lists the, the group of disciples and James and John are listed in there and we're told that their father's name was Zebedee, so they're the sons of Zebedee. But then we're told that Jesus gave them a nickname. In our junior high ministry right now that uh, our leaders are are overseeing, and I've been involved with the junior high um, just for an interim period right now, they have this whole nickname thing going on. They've got nicknames for everybody, for all the leaders and for each other. They've got all these nicknames that are wild and crazy, and they've been teasing me like, we're going to give you a nickname. And I've been saying to them, I'm going to give you a nickname too. And so we have a, a retreat that we're planning at the end of June, and it's my hope that I've gotten to know each of them well enough that I can give them a nickname that actually speaks value into their life. So Jesus, these two guys, James and John, gives them a nickname. Not, not like Thomas, who's also called Didymus the twin, but he calls them the sons of thunder. Why do you suppose Jesus calls them the sons of thunder? It's not because they were gassy. Because maybe they had more to do with Simon the Zealot than might make us feel comfortable. Or maybe their father was like that. I mean, again, we're speculating here. We're not sure. But I do know if you just flip over into Luke chapter 9, Uh, beginning at verse 51 we read this as the time drew near for Jesus to ascend to heaven he resolutely set out for Jerusalem this is a turning point in Luke's gospel so from chapters 5 to 9 it's all about his ministry in Galilee and then in chapter 9 verse 51 Jesus from from chapter 9 all the way to chapter 19 Jesus is moving towards Jerusalem and so he's setting his face to Jerusalem. He sent messengers ahead to a Samaritan village to prepare for his arrival. So the Samaritan people were kind of half Jews. There was a lot of animosity between Jewish people and Samaritan people. And often, devout Jews would actually go around. Instead of going straight up and down, Um, along the trade route that would go through Samaria, devout Jewish people would actually go way out of their way to go around Samaria. But Jesus is going to go through Samaria, and he sends messengers ahead to tell them. But the people of the village did not welcome Jesus because he was on his way to Jerusalem. So they must have got wind of that. And then listen to this, verse 54. When James and John, the sons of thunder, saw this, this is their loving response. Lord, should we call down fire from heaven and burn them up? Yes, that would be a good idea, wouldn't it, God? Wouldn't it, Jesus? Let's burn them. This is part of Jesus' dream team the sons of thunder. And then last and maybe what many would consider least is judas iscariot and he's the one that's actually not from galilee's from a town kirioth and of course they're not sure where it is but it was more south more towards jerusalem and judas is the one who betrays jesus and we read um, in the gospel accounts that that he sold Jesus for money for 30 pieces of silver and so some people think well it was because of the money that Judas betrayed Jesus and and I'm not sure in the case this is all speculation but but I wanted to point out a few things out of the 12 which one would have had the most financial acumen or the most financial experience and expertise the tax collector Matthew And yet it's Judas who is the one that Jesus puts in charge of the money. And so we read in John chapter 12 that Judas um, when the woman um, breaks the perfume over Jesus he gets furious and he says this was worth a year's wages. And of course John says it wasn't because he was concerned about the poor he was, cons- he was just infatuated with money, and he often helped himself to the money from the purse of the group of them together. But I find that interesting that, that Matthew isn't put in charge of the money. And remember earlier the tension that would have been happening there, but Judas is. And so I think that's sometimes why people think maybe he betrayed Jesus for money. But I think there's a case to be made, and others would say this as well, that Judas was disillusioned with Jesus because he thought Jesus was going to be something that he turned out not to be. Judas had images in his mind of what he thought Jesus should be as a Messiah or as God and how Jesus should behave and he didn't behave the way Judas wanted him to. And so I wonder if part of the betrayal of Jesus on Judas's part is because he's trying to force Jesus into being who he wants him to be. Or maybe he's just really fed up with Jesus and he wants Jesus to get what he thinks is due him. All of that is speculation. But what we do know is that in this one person particularly, everything falls apart relationally between him and Jesus to the point that he's betraying him. And if we've just been through Easter, we've we've looked at things like um, peter denying jesus three times so here's this dream team of jesus the people that jesus chooses and i'm left wondering as i read this why didn't he choose people from judea or jerusalem some religious people that had clout that had status that had influence why keep it all to these band of insignificant not entirely uneducated but not as educated as they could have been like why not pick some some highly educated people why not pick some very influential people why not throw a roman or two on your team who could help make inroads in with the roman government why does jesus choose these 12 men And then are these the only people that we really read about in Luke's gospel? Let's keep reading. The next verse is in chapter 6. So this is um, beginning at verse 17 to 19. So when they came down from the mountain, this is after he's picked the 12. When they came down from the mountain, the disciples stood with Jesus on a large level area surrounded by many of his followers and by the crowds. By the way, this is corresponding if you like to compare the different gospel writers and what they write. Um, In Matthew's historical account, his story of Jesus, when you get to chapter 5, it says that Jesus went up on a mountain and began to teach the crowds. This is Luke corresponding with this. So as we get into Luke chapter 6 for a couple of chapters, it's the teaching of Jesus that we're going to be looking at uh, in a few weeks. Okay, so he's on a level area surrounded by many of his followers and by the crowds. There were people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, and from as far north as the sea coast of Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon, if you're looking at a map, are northwest of Galilee where Jesus was, north, very northwest of Jerusalem. But they're on the coast. They had come to hear him, and to be healed of their diseases, and those troubled by evil spirits were healed. Everyone tried to touch him, because healing power went out from him, and he healed everyone." So Luke mentions another group of people, and actually, they're mentioned a lot in Luke's Gospel. They're mentioned in the other Gospel writers as well, but Luke mentions them frequently over and over and over again. It is the crowd. Jesus has a crowd That are always around him it doesn't matter where he goes it doesn't matter what he's doing there's always a crowd that are gathered around Jesus and for whatever reason he seems to be fairly comfortable with this crowd of people and the crowd of people are curious about who Jesus is people are curious now and they were then and if you read through Luke's Gospel, you'll see reference after reference to the crowd, or the crowds. And I, and I think Luke is doing this intentionally to help us pick up on what's happening. That always around Jesus, there are people who are spiritually curious. There are the spiritually curious who are surrounding Jesus. But there are also the resistors who are part of the crowd. They are the people who are are wanting to hold on to tradition. And they're a little bit uneasy about how Jesus is pushing the boundaries and making them uh, seem less significant than these people want them to be. There are antagonists in the crowd. People who are just downright against Jesus. And they want to be there... Making sure that their voice is heard. There are desperate people. And we see that in the second verse in verse 19 that we were reading people who were needing healing. And Jesus seems quite open. To offering them the healing that they're looking for there are affluent people in the crowd there are educated people in the crowd there are cynical people in the crowd there are bandwagon hoppers I didn't know what else to call them and there are faithful and devout people who are in the crowd and they're not all named but Luke regularly refers to them as the crowd And also in the crowd, pay attention, I mentioned Tyre and Sidon. These are coastal cities. They were Greek-speaking Gentile places. So the people are coming who are non-Jewish people, who are considered outsiders, who are largely considered unclean people because they weren't Jewish. Um, Sometimes they were seen as enemies, and they are a part of the crowd. Can you visualize the group of people sometimes in the thousands sometimes in the tens of people sometimes in the hundreds a whole mixed bag of people that Jesus just seems comfortable to have around all the time and they're often shown in a positive light so as you read through Luke's gospel you read about the crowd and usually Jesus is expressing compassion towards them or he's teaching them or he's helping them he's healing them and yet the crowd can get swayed really easily. And you see this as you get to the end of each of these good news stories of Jesus that the crowd gets swayed and they turn against Jesus, not something that he is unfamiliar with. So you've got the 12 in this passage. Jesus has spent the whole night saying, God, guide me well in choosing. And he chooses 12, and you get the idea of who he's choosing. And how it plays out for him and then you've got the crowd that is always around and I think Jesus is is in many respects saying the crowd is a part of what I'm doing and of course there's one group of people that are missing here and I don't know if you've noticed it or not where are the women Why are there no women in the 12? Why are there no women mentioned in the crowd? This is the place for that awkward pause. Because in our culture today, there is a huge stigma around the church and its patriarchy and misogynistic views. And you might be sitting there thinking, that's not true. And maybe it's not. But the perception is still there. And when you read passages like this, if you're somebody who's spiritually curious and and you are wondering about how does the church treat women and you read through the gospels and you see almost no mention of women you're left saying, it's no wonder the church is the way it is. Look at the book that they're reading. So what do you do with that? Well, this is where it gets fun and it gets interesting, where I would encourage you, as we go through Luke's gospel, what you see Luke doing, and he's giving us what Jesus did, is he is elevating the status of women in a culture that was far more patriarchal and misogynistic than we are today. And so culturally, I think what you see Jesus doing in this first century m- moment, and remember, um, we're not taking our cultural values and imposing them upon an ancient people in an ancient writing. So we have to understand the culture that they were in first so that we can learn from it and what it has for us in our culture today. And so Luke, I think masterfully, again and again in his writing shows us Jesus elevating the status of women. Luke himself is elevating the status of women. And while they are not mentioned specifically or explicitly in this passage, you need to understand the context in which Jesus is working, but you also need to pay attention to the rest of what's in the Gospel of Luke. And we've, we've talked about this again and again, that we don't pick one passage or one verse and isolate it all by itself. That's how you get into radical thinking that often goes, goes askew and leads astray. So when you go to Luke 24, you'll see that the, that the only people who are at the cross when Jesus in his most dire need are the women. And it names them, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, uh, Mary, his mother, and several other prominent women. Um, we're told that it was prominent women who supported Jesus and the disciples in their ministry. Ah, Who are the first person that Jesus appears to after he rises from the dead? Mary and some other women. They're the ones who run to tell the disciples. And so we need to pay attention to all these little bits and pieces here. But we also need to ask the question, where are the women? Because I think the church hasn't always done well in this. And I would just say, if you want to see the women, you can also go to Romans 16. And Paul is much more explicit, the Apostle Paul, in writing about women who were leaders in the early church. But this leads me to something that I want to introduce to you, which is a new series that we are starting next Sunday. And it's called Jesus, Women, and the Church. And for three weeks on May 1st May 8th May 15th I've invited some friends some some women friends of mine who are uh, leaders in the church they are teachers they're communicators they're preachers they are phenomenal in their in their ability to communicate they are um, scholastic they are uh, eloquent they are gifted in how they communicate so next Sunday we're gonna have uh, a friend of mine named Angela Lamb. She's from Jesus Collective, an organization that I'm involved with. And she's going to be coming and kind of giving us an overview of Luke's gospel and how Luke teaches us about Jesus, women in the church. And then the Sunday following, uh, Angela's from um, um, down near Canada's Wonderland. Um, She's uh, an American from the West Coast who has just in the last year moved up to Canada. And so we've um, brought her over into the light. Um, and uh, she's now one of us. And, uh, and then Erica Mills, who uh, her and her husband Jason have been attending here at New Life. She is the chaplain at the local hospital. And they're kind of in an in-between space in ministry. So they're trying to figure out what's next for them. But Erica is going to be sharing with us on Mother's Day. And then on the 15th, another friend of mine, Leanne Friesen from um, Mount Hamilton Baptist Church, she's down in Hamilton, and she's gonna kind of wrap it all up. And for three weeks, we're gonna look at Luke's gospel and what Luke um, helps us understand in Jesus and his relationship with women and the church today. And so if you are kind of, you know, when I ask where are the women and you're just feeling yourself bristling because it's so frustrating for you, first thing i want to say is um, you know if you've been put down because because of your gender um, if you've been left aside uh, if you've been made to feel less than or silenced then the first thing i want to do is just apologize because i don't think that's what jesus models for us and i and i know that it has probably happened here too maybe i've done it because I'm still growing and learning about all the stuff that has influenced me from a very young age in my views. And, and God just continues to do new works in my life. But I'm excited about uh, how these women are going to come and, and help us learn and grow. And I want to encourage you to track with us over the next three weeks. And if you're here or you're watching on eye and you're like, oh, brother, I don't need to listen to this, then you absolutely need to tune in and listen, and put yourself in a position of being willing to sit and to hear from and learn from and be challenged in your thinking, because we are all going to need that. And so I'm really excited about, about this series coming up, and I hope that you will be too. So here's Jesus choosing some and the crowd is there, he's comfortable with them and I think part of what we gain from this is when it comes to Jesus and his dream team, Jesus seems very intentional about choosing the limited, the least, the last, and the lost to represent his kingdom because the kingdom of God is for anyone. And let's be honest, we are in a culture that usually takes the limited, the least, the last, and the lost and leaves them there and pursues the best, the purest, the the most eloquent, the most wealthy, the most successful, the most influential, the ones who can belligerently work their way to the top of the pyramid, And I think what Jesus is showing in God's kingdom is that there is no pyramid. We just, if we want to have a pyramid, I think what Jesus is showing us is that we invert it. Because the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve from the bottom up. Because if you want to be greatest in the kingdom, then you need to become the servant and the last of all. And so just looking at this passage, I can't help but see that Jesus is choosing the limited, the least, the last, and the lost. And I wonder, as we've gone through this today, which one of these people stands out to you? Who is the Holy Spirit drawing you to? If you were to identify with someone that we've looked at today, who would it be? Maybe maybe one of the 12. Maybe you feel like, yeah, I think I'd be one of the 12. Maybe I'd be one of the inner three circle. Maybe you feel like, I'm just one of those obscure disciples. Faithful and devout, and I'm just going to stay with Jesus. But maybe never get any grand applaud for doing anything magnificent. Maybe you're feeling like Matthew. Man, I've got so much to account for in my past, and I have no idea why I'm here, and I feel like everybody's looking at me funny. And and maybe some of these people know about my past. Maybe you're one of the people in the crowd, cynical, jaded with religion. And yet, you find yourself attracted to Jesus. And all I would say is, don't worry about the church and the things that it's done that frustrate you or make you mad just stay focused on jesus sit with him follow him because there's a reason why you continue to feel attracted to him maybe you're one of those people from tyre sedan you don't look like everybody else in the room you don't sound like everybody else in the room and you don't really feel like there's a place for you to really get in people are nice on the outside but it's hard to get past that that, that exterior And in each of these people, Jesus seems to be comfortable in saying, I'm glad you're here. Thanks for going on the journey with us. And while he's saying that to each of these people individually, he's also communicating with everybody else. Let me model for you how we live together. And I might be wrong, but I don't think there's a mistake that he chose the people that he chose. And he took the risks that he took, not being completely sure how it was all going to turn out. And certainly, there were many more women involved in Jesus' ministry and life than maybe what we see explicitly. But if you read closely, you'll see them there. And I hope that that's an encouragement for you. I hope that when you see that Jesus chooses the limited, the least, the last, and the lost, that you might be sitting here today or sitting at home and saying, boy, there's hope for me. Maybe realizing that Jesus chooses the the limited, the least, the last, and the lost makes you feel a bit uneasy. And I would just encourage you to sit with that. Ask the Spirit of God to show you what you need to understand today. And then ask the Spirit of God what you need to do as a result of what you've learned. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for, um, thank you for who Jesus chooses when we get to see this list of names. Understanding a little bit more who these, who these men were, who these women were for the crowd that is always there. And I'm sure each of us identify with someone and I pray that you would um, allow us to be drawn to someone in this story and that we would allow the Spirit of God to speak into our hearts and minds about what we do as a result of that. Thank you that in this community, you just seem comfortable with the crowd and whoever's in it, and that we're growing and learning how to be the very same way. Thank you for choosing us. In Christ's name I pray, amen. So thank you for being here. We're going to um, just invite you to... To uh, enjoy the rest of the morning visit chat with uh, with others Uh, if you can um, give some time on May 7th to help us with our cleanup please put your name down or go online and do that and uh, enjoy the weather today because it looks like it's going to be a nice afternoon and we are just enjoying um, some warmer rain free weather and uh, we will see you next Sunday when we start this new series Jesus women in the church